All right, the sermon insert there should say Summer Psalms, Learning the Songs of Jesus. We are continuing our series this summer, looking at the Psalms, and we find ourselves this morning in Psalm 47. Psalm 47 is located in book two of the Psalms. We talked about the, the, the highly structured nature of the Psalms. There's five books in the 150 Psalms. We're in book two. And even a, a further subset within book two of the Psalms, which is Psalms 42 to 72, Psalm 47 is often thought of as a grouping with the Psalm before it, 46, which we looked at last week, and Psalm 48, which we'll look at next week. 46 through 48 are often called the songs or Psalms of Zion, Zion, the, the, the city of God, Jerusalem, because those Psalms, 46, 47, and 48, specifically locate themselves in the city of God, and they look at God's protection of his city and God's people in that city. Additionally, you should know before we read the text that we're going to be meditating on a psalm of praise. I mentioned that at the outset during our call to worship. It's a psalm praising God, praising God's glory as king of the earth, as king of the entire universe who has conquered the world conquered all people, and redeemed for himself a family to glorify him and enjoy him forever. So this psalm is celebrating that. Um, As is our custom here, I hope you're not too comfy, let me ask you, invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm 47. To the choir master. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout for joy with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Bradbury clan has enjoyed a a book called The God Contest during our family worship time. Um, Most evenings we gather at the table at dinner for uh, catechism questions, and then following dinner we sing uh, a song, we pray, we read a book, we meditate on scripture. This is a great book that's helped us. I'd actually hold out this whole series. It's published by The Good Book for Children. It's a subgroup of The Good Book Publishing Company. Um, They have a number of stories called Tales That Tell the Truth. You may know one of the other ones, because it's in our bookstore, The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross, which Roger, I think, has read to us, I think, on Good Friday one year. it's uh, they got a number of other ones, really good. This is one of my favorites, The God Contest. The, the uh, subtitle is The True Story of Elijah, with a J, Elijah, Jesus, and the Greatest Victory. So you may know this story from the kings. It's the story of, of Elijah, 
a prophet of God, Yahweh, squaring off with the prophets, 450 of them to be exact, of the, of the, the God of Baal, the false God of Baal. And they have, uh, this book puts it in the context of a contest, like a sporting contest. Who's going to win? Who is the true God? If it's Baal, worship him. If it's Yahweh, the God of the Bible, worship him. And so Elijah puts together a contest. Let's see who's going to win between Elijah and Baal. And you know the story, the 400 prophets of, 450 prophets of, of Baal put an animal sacrifice on an altar And Elijah says, go ahead, call to your Baal, call to God, and see if he sends down fire to consume the sacrifice. It doesn't happen. You know the story, Elijah kind of mocks them. Maybe he's asleep, go wake him up. Maybe he's on vacation, you might need to wait for him to come back. Or maybe he's relieving himself on the body. But the story goes on, it's Elijah's turn. And he prays, he cries out to Yahweh to send fire to consume the animal sacrifice. After, of course, he's doused it in water and made it very hard for the the sacrifice to catch on fire. And Yahweh wins. He sends down fire to consume the sacrifice. But the story goes on as the people are celebrating Yahweh's victory of the God contest to a different event. When When God did not send fire from heaven, but he sent a person, Jesus Christ. And it goes on to talk about what Jesus did for us. It talks about his teaching ministry, his, his miracles, and how he gathers people to himself, and then ultimately in his death on the cross, and in his resurrection for us. Resurrection life. My favorite part of the book, and why I'm telling you this, uh, there's no page numbers, but it's this page. Jesus rose back to life. Jesus had a body that worked. Jesus could live forever. The God contest was finally over. Now lots of people knew that Jesus was the real God, the only God, the God who made everything and rules everyone and loves everyone and could give them life forever. Now lots of people said, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Lots of people, it says down here, joined Team Jesus. My favorite part of this, though, And as one of the majority culture reading this, I didn't notice the diversity of all of the people singing the praises of Jesus that he is God. You've got Phoebe here from the New Testament, doubting Thomas. You've got Athanasius and Augustine of Hippo looking like they probably did. North Africans with very dark skin. You have people dressed differently. We have Asians, old, young dressed in different garbs, kings and queens, peasants and farmers, children, every color, every age, every socioeconomic category. Friends, this picture is depicting what Psalm 47 is getting at and what the New Testament makes abundantly clear. If you're like me, we can fall into the lie or, 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 or the mistake of thinking that the church as a whole, all Christians are just like us. When you look around the room, just like us, it's just not true. Throughout the ages and around the globe right now, there is a people worshiping Jesus from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And Psalm 47 is kind of a a prototype of that. Looking forward, looking ahead to the time when God, through the work of Jesus, would redeem a people, one people for himself, 
one family for himself. And that people would not just be Israel, would be made up of people from every tribe, all peoples, all colors, all ethnicities, to worship and enjoy Jesus forever and having everlasting life. That is what the psalm is teaching us. Psalm 47 is going to show us, if I had to make one argument, that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is gathering for himself one people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. I want to prove that to you as we explore this psalm and then use it as a launching pad into various New Testament fulfillments of it. Uh, I have three points for us. We're going to spend most of the time on the first two and then just kind of conclude with a thought. Though the first one I want us to see is that our king is their conqueror. Our king, their conqueror. That's from verses 1 through 4. You may recall the Psalms are often connected to the Psalms that come before it and the Psalms that come after it. And Psalm 47 is another example of that. One commentator helpfully summarizes the position of Psalm 47 in the Psalms with this. He says, quote, The individual discouragement in Psalms 42 and 43 resonated with the anguish of the believing community in Psalm 44, and the longings of those Psalms were met with the coming of the king in Psalm 45, who established the apocalyptic city in Psalm 46, and now, in Psalm 47, the peoples of the nations are praising the conquering king. That last statement is the the central point here. The peoples of the nations are now praising the king of Israel, the king of the Bible, Yahweh. Let me put it another way. Non-Israelites are becoming Israel by worshiping the God of Israel. God is forming for himself a people made up of, yes, ethnic Jews, Israel, but also Gentiles, non-Israel. And this is, like I said, a foreshadowing here in Psalm 47. I actually think it's clear in Psalm 47, but it becomes abundantly clear the more we trace out the story of Scripture. So look first at who's commanded to sing and to clap in verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. That's not just a collective term for like uh, all the people in the city. It's not just a collective term for all the Israelites. It is a specific term talking about the nations, the people surrounding Jerusalem, the people surrounding Israel. Many of them enemies in a lot of ways. They're non-Israel, non-Jewish. And the king, the conquering king of Israel, is looking at them and saying, clap your hands, sing and worship the one true God, Yahweh. How did this happen? How do we see this develop, and and who is it talking about here? How is it that all the peoples of the earth become God's people? You may recall in our long journey through Luke's Gospel, in chapter 19, verse 10, the the mission statement, or or the single verse that that holds together the whole Gospel, is Luke 19.10. The Son of Man. Jesus picking up on the the title, Son of Man, from Daniel's prophecy. The Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. That's how 
That's how a people from every tribe and language and people and nation are included in God's new family. It's because Jesus sought them. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, which included Israelites, absolutely, and those not from Israel. And how did he secure this? How did he accomplish it? How did this king do this? Friends, it's nothing other than the death and resurrection of the king. Jesus Christ, the true conquering king. And yet he conquers in an unexpected way. He didn't use a sword and slay people and force them into submission. He did not force you into submission. Our conquering king conquered through dying, through serving, and through gloriously being resurrected from the dead for our sins, for our righteousness. And that's exactly what Revelation 5 says. That's, this is the, the passage where I kind of took my main argument. That through the good news of Jesus Christ, God is gathering for himself one people from every language, tribe, language, people, and nation. That comes from Revelation 5. Let me read it to you. It's kind of a, a strange passage. We're talking about a scroll here, which is the, the scroll of human history and redemptive history. No one's worthy to open it except one. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, purchased, redeemed, people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy, willful submission, worship, joy in the true God of the Bible, even though they weren't, properly speaking, the people of God. God is gathering for himself one family, Israelites, Egyptians, Philistines, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, Romans, Americans, Russians, Iranians, Indians, Scots, Irish, Africans, white, black, young, old, rich, poor, introverted, extroverted, strong, weak, regardless of your Myers-Briggs, regardless of your Enneagram. One people from every language and every tribe. And these people, we have been conquered. We have been won by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by a person, by a king, Jesus Christ, who won us with his love by dying for us and making us a people. So we are responding with joy, with gladness, with worship. And friends, this was the mission all along. The plan all along from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, with that first proclamation of the gospel, with God calling Abraham, who would become the father of Israel, is told that I'm calling you for the nations. I've made you a people, Israel, with the hopes of blessing all the peoples. The mission all along from creation, from book one, was to gather a multi-ethnic people from every tribe and every language and every people in every nation to worship the one true God. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. That's what they're called in the Psalms and what they're called in the prophets. 
They were to be a countercultural people that lived so close and, and as a family that the non-people of God out there saw them and said, I want that. They've got the true God. Their God has won the God contest, and it's true. So clap your hands, all you people. Shout for joy with loud songs of joy. What do you think he should say next? Like other psalms, maybe play some instruments, make noise, lift your voices, shout with exceeding joy. All of those are true responses, but look at what he does in verse 2. Clap your hands, all people. Shout for joy, loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. That's a little odd. The Lord is to be feared. I'm going to make just a couple comments here, but I want to commend a work to you by Michael Reeves. It's somewhat of a recent book titled Rejoice and Tremble. The surprising good news of the fear of the Lord. Rejoice and tremble. The surprising good news of the fear of the Lord. It's a couple hundred pages. It's $15 on Amazon. This would do your soul good if you're um, enticed by what I'm about to say and want to learn more. But you might be saying, like, okay, this is a little weird, Taylor. What are you talking about? We've been looking at a number of psalms before this and seen direct exhortations in them as well as applications from them, where we are to not fear. Do not be afraid. Do not be anxious. Do not fear. And yet now, you're telling me, and it says it right here, and if you know the Scriptures, you know how often this command is there, we're told to fear the Lord? Which, which one is it? Well, we should know that there's a clear divide in God's word between, and here's where I'm grasping for language, there's been a number of different um, uh, ideas thrown forth. But there, there's a clear divide in, in Scripture, you can pick, between sinful fear and godly fear. Between evil fear and right fear. Bad fear Good fear, healthy fear, unhealthy fear. Any of those are, could be good, good options. We are often finding ourselves, and what the Scriptures prohibit and command against is that sinful fear, evil fear, ungodly fear. The fear that I quoted last week in the work of Professor Frank Fioretti in his work, How Fear Works, A Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, who makes the argument um, that we as Americans are more fearful today than generations past and than peoples elsewhere, and we have far less to be afraid of now than previous generations and people elsewhere right now. Why are we so afraid? Why are anxiety and fear medicines on an all-time high? I'm not speaking to those. I'm just diagnosing or, or just making a statement that we are more fearful now than ever, and have far less to fear. He puts forth one possible solution of this paradox of a safe society where he says that it's actually our prosperity and safety. Our prosperity and safety make us more fearful because the more prosperous and safe we are, the more we're afraid of loss and afraid of risk. We're more afraid and the scriptures want to speak into that. Fear not. And the solution, though, isn't just that, like, that old skit. Stop it. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. 
The scriptures are holding out to us something else. The problem is actually that we're fearing wrongly. We're fearing the loss of our stuff. We're fearing maybe our death, our lives. We're fearing what other people will think of us. And anxiety takes over. The problem isn't that we're being afraid. We're not being afraid of the right one. Jesus says, don't be afraid of the people who can kill you, behead you, take your life. Fear the one who can take your life and your soul. Talking about God. What the scriptures hold out before us, a fear of the Lord. Now, this is not a trembling fear, like a runaway, like I saw what I thought was a ghost and I'm so terrified I'm out. Biblically speaking, the good fear of scripture is often translated um, or commentated as reverential awe reverential awe. The Lord, the Most High, verse 2, is to be reverentially awed. Sounds weird. And that's part of it. I still think that kind of fails to get at what is truly going on here. The fear of the Lord is the Holy Spirit working in us a fear of God that draws us to God. No illustration here is perfect. And and so I'm, I'm kind of grasping here. I've experienced this type of thing, a a fear, but that is awesome, awe-inspiring, that keeps me in in usually two places, the mountains and cities. I know it's kind of odd. Big buildings, I I don't know about you, but I like stand right next to them and look up and I kind of lose my stomach a little bit. I'm like, whoa, whoa, it's like massive. Or specifically mountains, like being in the backcountry, I love backpacking, being in the mountains, and there is a fear sometimes, but it's, it's, a, it's a wonder, a wow, beauty. A couple years back, I, I, I hiked through Grand Tetons National Park with a couple of buddies, and we were on the, the Teton Crest Trail, and you get up to Hurricane Pass, we're thousands of feet in elevation, we're pretty high, but then we're still looking up at the Tetons. And we, of course, get right to the edge of a, just a drop-off to death, truly. And we're afraid, but I don't want to go anywhere. It is a fear, but I'm like, I love it. This is amazing. It's not just adrenaline. I'm not an adrenaline junkie, I don't think. It's truly a wonder, a fear that keeps me. I don't want to be anywhere else but here. Wow. And the scriptures often speak that way about our relationship with God as one of fear reverential awe, but more. It's a trembling fear that makes us excited to be with him. So I'll, I'll close this first point with a quote from Michael Reeves in his book. The living God is infinitely perfect and quintessentially, overwhelmingly beautiful in every way, in his righteousness, in his graciousness, his majesty, his mercy, his all. And we do not love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of the saints' love for and enjoyment of all God is. He goes on, now he's quoting Charles Spurgeon here. Right fear does not stand in tension with love for God. Right fear falls on its face before the Lord, but falls leaning forward. I want to say more. We have to move on. 
That's our king, the king of Israel, the king of God's people, commanding all of the nations around to worship him because he has conquered them and redeemed them. The second piece here, and we'll move quickly through this one. Uh, Probably not. Secondly, uh, welcoming the king. This is verses 5 through 7. Often in Hebrew poetry, in the, the Psalms, you get to the main point in the middle of the poem. We often get our most famous passages or verses in the titles of the psalms from like the opening verse or two. But the heart of the psalm is in the middle. It builds to something and often then comes down from there. And verse 5 is that central key idea. Verse 5 says, God has gone up. Right? It's, it's the language of he was down here, now he's gone up. Gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of of a trumpet. This is important because it's an identical phrase from 2 Samuel 6. If you haven't been in 2 Samuel 6 recently, that is the story of the ark, the ark of God, not Noah's ark, the ark of God, like the treasure chest where like the, uh, the, 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 the Ten Commandments were, Aaron's staff, it was put in the Holy of Holies eventually in the temple and where God's presence was. The ark is being brought up into the city of God, making it the city, God's presence on earth where heaven and earth is touching. You probably know the story because Uzzah puts his hand out and gets struck dead. Now we're all tracking. That's 2 Samuel 6. He, what, what happened there is he was disobeying God. God told the people how to transport the ark, and it was through poles and carrying it. They, through their own ingenuity and being intuitive, decided it'd be easier and less hard to carry the ark on a cart. So they put it on a cart. Sure enough, that doesn't go well. The ark falls off as it puts his hand out. God kills him. Because he's trying to worship and relate to God in his own way rather than what God had said. Anyways, 2 Samuel 6, verse 15. This is the phrase. So God, so David, and all the house of Israel brought up the ark, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. It's the same phrase used here in Psalm 47, where God is being, he's pictured as ascending his throne, walking up the steps to his throne. And it could be also uh, uh, alluding to Old Testament places where God is said to come down and fight for his people. Think of the Tower of Babel, think of the Exodus Think of Elijah and Shah. Think of Hezekiah when Israel is surrounded by the Assyrians and God comes down to fight for them and then he goes up. That's what's going on here. He's, he's fought for his people, he's conquered, he's won, and then he goes up to sit on his throne of victory as the king. But notice, this could be said of the whole psalm. Look at the responses of both God's people and the nations who have now become God's people. Clap your hands. Shout. Sing loud songs of joy. Fearing the Lord. Reverential awe that moves toward the Lord. A shout. Trumpets. Verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises. Sing praises. Did did you hear it? Sing praises. Or verse 7, sing praises with a psalm. If you've got a footnote there, it's going to push you down. The word psalm there is the word maskeel. Maskeel. It's, it's the, the superscription of a lot of the psalms. It's the, it comes from the root word for wisdom or instruction. So we're to sing praises to God because of what he's done. And sometimes we're to sing 
praises with a psalm, with a song of instruction, of theology, of wisdom. We should be singing rich things about Christ our King. Sing praises. But I, I want us to see the responses to God, both vocally and bodily. Do we sing? I'm not talking about do we have singing times at church. Do you sing? Do you respond bodily to the good news of the gospel? To the beauty and majesty of our God? I want to be sensitive to everyone's personality types and temperaments. Got to say that. But friends, if, if we're never responding to God's beauty and majesty and grace... Like this? Something's probably not wrong with the Psalms and what they're prescribing, but with me, with you. Sing praises. Sing praises loudly. Clap your hands, be joyful, smile, move. Show life. Do you know this God? It's not just in the Psalms, friends, it's all over the Scriptures. The New Testament, Paul teaches his protege that when people pray, you should pray with your hands lifted. Be sensitive again. Not everyone is the same personality type and temperament, but I do want to say, are we responding to the amazing good news of Jesus this way? Ever? You've probably shouted at a UFC or a boxing match. You can't shout for the Lord. Fist pumped at a Colts game, but we can't uncross our arms at church. Clapped our hands, the Indiana Pacers, but we're just frozen chosen here. Raised your hands at a concert, but your hands are constantly stuck in your pockets as we're singing and praying. Maybe even danced, got real crazy at a wedding. Even if it's just a little sway, but you're stuck. When you think about the gospel... Lost your voice in karaoke, but your lips are sealed when it comes to singing Christ, our only hope in life and death. Friends, if we haven't, like, how can we not respond to some degree this way to the supreme majesty of the King of the universe with song and praise because He's made a way for us to be forgiven and to have everlasting life with Him? How can we not I have the privilege of uh, serving as the teaching assistant at Indianapolis Theological Seminary this semester as we're, uh, I'm helping with a class, Systematic Three. Salvation, Holy Spirit, and End Times or Ultimate Things. Soteriology, Pneumatology, and Eschatology. And there's a book by God's providence we've been reading through that speaks exactly to this that I read Wednesday of this week. It's a book by Sinclair Ferguson called The Holy Spirit. And he says this, Christian believers can turn to the Psalms not only to find their own experiences of sorrow, doubt, fear, and even despair mirrored there, but to find examples of wholehearted adoration and devotion that exemplify what it means to worship God by the Spirit. That's what we're seeing here. What I might just say is appropriate responses 
to God's majesty and the redemption that He has provided to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again for us. Jesus Christ and Him crucified, risen, and ascended, where by faith we can be forgiven and adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. And He right now in glory is praying for you. Something's wrong with me when I can't know that truth and sing and smile and be filled with joy. How can we not? In conclusion, the third point is really good, but we're going to have to conclude. Verses 8 and 9 is kind of where we, we tie the bow on everything. This king who has conquered, who has gone up to his throne, is being worshipped by Israel and non-Israel alike, one family, one people. We see in verses 8 and 9, one throne, one king, and one world. Specifically, just look at verse 9, the first phrase. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. That's the light to the nations. That's where all of history has been headed and where all of history is pointing. It's the climax of the the psalm we looked at last week. Psalm 46, verse 10. uh, That that often quoted verse that's sometimes misunderstood, but it says, Be still. Know that I am God. Stop your striving. Cease. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When? Where? Why? How? This. The peoples of the earth are gathered together as the people of the God of Abraham. One people worshiping one God in one world is where we're headed. The dividing walls have been demolished. There's no more Jew and Gentile. There's no more high, low, mighty, strong, rich, poor, or in the words of Colossians 3. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Because... What Paul says in the third chapter of a different letter, Galatians. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Friends, I'm looking at a bunch of descendants of Abraham. And Abraham is told that your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm looking at a bunch of stars. There is one dividing wall. And that is whether or not you're in Christ or out of Christ. Whether or not you're resting in Jesus alone for salvation or resting in yourself or someone else. So the, the, the question, the, the dividing wall is still before us. Are you trusting in Jesus alone for salvation? Have you received Him and, and believe that He and He alone is the, the source of redemption? Or are you resisting Him? As we go to the table, this is a table of the world, if you will. Not the world as in bad stuff, but the world global. This is a table where people from every tribe, language, people, and nation come together as one family, redeemed by the blood of Christ because Jesus has begun to draw all peoples to Himself. As He said in John 12, He would, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. Jesus the King of Psalm 47, the eternal Son of God, God made flesh, died for us, appeased the wrath of God, made us His 
his brothers, his sons and daughters. We've been forgiven, made friends of the king. So friends, let's clap our hands. Let's sing. Let's move. Let's respond, to use the words of Psalm 44, verse 43, verse 4, with exceeding joy. How can we not sing? We're going to come to that table now, the table of the king's victory, the table of all tribes and language and peoples and nation to see Jesus' body and his blood for us where he made us one family.